I believe that when we go about addressing issues, ultimately it's also about coordinating ourselves and like going about it from many different angles and keeping at it. It's kind of like, I like to say, you have to believe that you can change the world and you have to believe it every single day. Hey y'all, you're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. Alessandra Soberger is an entrepreneur, investor, and active board member to several companies. She was born in Switzerland and is fluent in six languages. During high school, Alessandra started focusing on neuroscience while working as a windsurf and snowboard instructor on the side. She created her first business at 11 years old and has been investing in the blockchain and biotech sector since graduating from Oxford in 2012. She's the youngest member of her Oxford Degrees Advisory Board. Alessandro also founded Top Tier Impact, the global private network of impact investors and impact entrepreneurs. Top Tier Impact members can manage some of the leading impact funds and run some of the most impactful companies. And she's with us today on Risky Behavior. We have with us Alessandra Solberger, and she really gets how important it is to merge communities, both public and private, and scientists and business people, which historically has been siloed. That's something Taylor and I have been talking about through season one, how important it is to really cross expertise. So we're thrilled to have you here, Alessandra. Thank you for joining us. And from Thailand, of all places. Exactly, Sweta. Thank you for having me. I'm on the other side of the world and having a pretty good time here. So really, let's jump right into it. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about Top Tier Impact, what you do in your everyday life? I know Shetha and I have been following you and you're just so fascinating, but I think to start out the show, it'd be great just to kind of give your organization uh, and you a little bit of highlight with what you're doing. Of course. Thanks, Taylor. So Top Tier Impact is a global network of impact investors, impact entrepreneurs across various areas like healthcare, education, clean energy, technology, and then also corporate leaders, experts, very often scientists, and, uh, and some NGO leaders. And we also have people who are um, you know, in uh, sustainability-related positions uh, in places like the United Nations. We now are across more than 30 countries. We have over 250 members. And uh, we are very focused on making sure that the global impact and sustainability space can grow faster and can grow better. So we do that by also accelerating the success of our own members because they're all impact leaders. So their success is a proxy of the success of the entire sector, right? And, uh, and we've been doing this in various ways. There are a lot of investments happening to a top tier impact, a lot of partnerships, talent exchange. And then there is a daily flow of insights being shared across the community. Because like I told you, we're across over 30 countries. And so we need to make sure that our members can connect, do business with each other, exchange insights, no matter where they're based. That's awesome. Jetha and I were at an event at the Swedish embassy uh, here in D.C., and it was really empowering to see how the private sector has really embraced 
climate change. And you see companies from all over the place that are just really throwing a lot of resources into it and it's lucrative for them. I mean, and you know, one of the things I'm from Southwestern Kentucky and, you know, I was, I was always brought up with the windmill society is not profitable and it actually really is. And I think Sweden is a perfect example of that. So yeah, Taylor, it's a good point because you see, as I like to say, it's become more profitable to be part of the solution than to be part of the problem. And this is a very recent change. Even in the thousands, when there was a bubble in the clean tech space and every fund in Silicon Valley wanted to be a green fund, it wasn't as profitable yet. It was still very expensive. Sectors like solar, right? So green energy, which is one of the areas of sustainability, right? It's a big area, has now become truly affordable, truly cheap. And so this is part of the change that we're seeing. Did did those things need to happen in that order to see private sector really step up? Did it need to get to the point where it became more economical for investment and for, you know, actually going in that direction? Because we could have probably turned the tide had we made those efforts long time ago, given the power of the private sector. I'm just curious as to how much of this needs to be needs to be um, environment driven. The fact that we're really getting to that tipping point where we don't have a choice. And we're also really getting to that point where we can afford to, to address the issues of where we don't have a choice. If that wasn't the case, what would private sector have done otherwise? And this is the reason I'm asking that is because there tends to be this like negative kind of view. And I, the work you're doing is so positive and it's really inspiring and it gets people excited. But I feel like this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Right. You see, at the end of the day, the private sector gets incentivized by the public sector. Taxes and legislation move industries. And so even if it wasn't, let's say, as affordable as it is today, getting incentives by the public sector is what has helped and could have helped even more drastically. Right. But at the end of the day, you kind of need one or the other. So in other words, you need technologies to make so much sense that it's inevitable anyway, or you need a help and a push coming from the public sector to incentivize the private side as well. You know, that's a really good point. And on the nutrition side, I've argued that for quite some time. Soda taxes don't work. And we the media has kind of blown up every little detail on soda taxes. Um, but for the most part, they've had no effect. But if you incentivize the industry to create healthier products, they do. They innovate. And I think the same thing happens with climate change. And I just I think it's really neat to see what you're doing with the private sector, because I just think that that's one of the great things about America. But I also think that that's one of the great things about this world. We often like try to put the private sector against everybody, but they're the solution in many aspects. Yeah. And also it's Everybody says that, okay, this climate change, for example, is so huge that it's individual action action can't do anything. It really does come to overhaul of different industries like transportation, like um, cement, steel, those types of overhauls are needed. But ultimately, from what Alessandro just said, look how critical individual demands are because that feeds the public interest, that feeds the governance, the policies, the incentives that are then make their way to the private sector, which then sees those overhaul of industries. So ultimately it comes down to individual citizens and what they want and demand from their governance, right? So actually that makes a strong case for just how important our behaviors 
and how, you know, viewers right now listening can really demand change compared to, so what is the relationship to what you're doing to the individual experience, to the citizen who really wants to make an impact? What do we say to them? How can they actually, aside from just like the obvious cycle that I described, what can they do? Absolutely. So their voice and their taste is what truly matters at the end of the day. And so they vote with their wallets and they vote by wanting different things. So for instance, by wanting organic choices, what happens there, to give you an example, so if you start having organic and like healthy options, right, uh, for, uh, for your eating choices, for, for your food, initially it was kind of like, your friend who's really into it and he's become vegan before anybody else. And it's quite tricky to find vegan food at that point in time, right? But you start thinking, oh, wow, that's interesting. And so then you see it somewhere, you start buying it, right? And so that kind of uh, effect, right, compounds. And at some point, it becomes also more affordable. And when it becomes more affordable, then you want even more of it. And then it becomes social cultural. And when it becomes social cultural, it's part of your identity, right? And like companies at the end of the day, consumer companies are identities. They sell you that as well, right? And so you start associating, for instance, if you say I'm vegetarian, it's kind of your your religion as well in a certain sense, you know, because it's how you identify yourself. It's like how you treat your values and how you kind of like put yourself out there in the world. And so at the end of the day, consumers dictate what companies do. And I think that there is, we were just talking about the public sector and the private sector against each other. There is a very, very important thing to keep in mind when we talk about the private sector. Think about it as two areas, two areas in which on one side, you've got traditional private sector companies that have been around for a very long time and are, let's say, trying to innovate or struggling to innovate. Okay, and they need to protect their interests. And then on the other side, you've got innovative companies or newer companies, fast growing companies that are seeing what's coming. They're nimble, they're moving fast, and they are responding to what consumers want. And at some point with those dynamics, you start having mature companies eventually responding because they have to. But at the end of the day, they come from very different places as well. And when it comes to contributing to a new sector, let's say a sustainable new sector, obviously it's much easier for new companies to come in and propose constructive solutions that are all about the future, right? And if you really want to see a headache, you look at what happens as these big food companies buy the small companies, but they let the small companies keep their own individual identity and brand. But, you know, corporate still runs the the show. Um, I've worked a lot with Unilever on the Lipton tea stud. Um, and as you know, they own Ben and Jerry's and it's been a constant, you know, kind of struggle because Ben and Jerry's is one of those companies that's really, really out there um, for better environmental policy, things like that, which conflicts with a lot of the other brands, you know, that Unilever has. So I, I do, I think it's a really powerful thing. I think it, the consumer feel, here's what I want to ask. So you have these industries and I've been close to the dairy, beef and egg industries for quite some time. And they are dumping resources into sustainability. So they're, the beef industry is now developing cattle feed supplement uh, that you can give that kills off a lot of the methanogens in their stomach so they don't burp methane gas, um, or at least they decrease the amount of methane gas. That's that a they real burp. thing. 
Listeners. And then you've got the, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a real thing. Yeah. It's a, it's like a dietary Amazing. supplement for a cow, uh, you know, that you would give them in, in their feed meal. Cause you have to supplement, you know, farm animals, just like we have to have nutrients, but then you have to balance that with the almond folks, the strawberry people, the romaine lettuce folks go, we're plants. We're not sustainable. I mean, we're sustainable. We're plants. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You can be making improvements on water usage, transportation, all of these other factors. So uh, a lot of the times, you know, these industries initially react and it's uh, not me. You know, it's not me. I'm not beef. I'm not egg. I'm not dairy. And so I don't have the responsibility to put money towards things. How do you and how does your organization kind of go about, you know, kind of bringing that together? Because it really is on all of us and not one of us. Yes. So you're basically saying, how do we make sure that everybody is accountable, right? I think at the end of the day, a lot eventually comes out, right? Because consumers educate themselves, right? Like this is also the other big thing that has been changing. Consumers are able to educate themselves and have resources to do so. And it's kind of a matter of time in, you know, in my experience and in what I've seen, where you might have a, a specific part of the industry that is like, oh, not us, like we're fine. And then something comes up, right? And so it's kind of like how to play, like coming forward, even when you don't have all the answers yet, right? And gaining trust in that way, right? Because a consumer sees through that as well. Maybe not even consciously, you know, maybe even subconsciously, but they see through it. So trust is there or is not there. And so from my perspective, I think that coming through no matter what, whether all the answers are there or not, is the approach that in the long run, like gains consumers trust. But it's tricky to see that out there. Hence your point, right? And so, yeah, I think in general, it tends to be a matter of time. And then certain companies play it out in a different way. I love your example about Ben and Jerry's uh, and uh, I've interacted as well uh, with these companies. And so there is always a bit of a, uh, a conflict of cultures, right? Yeah, it really but, uh, is. Yeah, it knows how you communicate and all of that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to observe it and to observe it both in the shoes of the consumer, right? Because at the end of the day, even for myself, like I'm both the consumer and then I observe it from like a business standpoint and to see the different approaches. Talking about, and since you brought up Unilever, I'm just going to use this example one more time. So they're very decentralized, like you said, like Johnson & Johnson and other massive conglomerates that have their um, smaller companies that, that want to maintain their brand and their image. Unilever, given what we've also seen going on in the United States and around the world, uh, just to bring in some of additional current events in addition to climate change efforts, but also with the Black Lives Matter and with the racial injustice, police brutality. Unilever has a product called Fair and Lovely, which is very widely known in Asia, very popular in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And the idea is to bring your, it's, it's based really in colorism of these cultures or shadism as it's referred to. So the lighter your skin tone, the better. And that's one really problematic, another example of where it gets really problematic for some of these big companies. How do you have a brand like that, that just is no longer, does not fit modern society and demands from consumers? And how do you disengage and remove yourself from that? So we've seen worldwide calls for racial justice, but you're still seeing some of these companies hold on to some of these really archaic branding, brands and branding. So it's just, I wanted to showcase that as another example of how some of these things are very interconnected and complex. We're talking about climate change, but here 
here private sector really owns so much of social commentary and has so much power potentially just to send a signal by remove getting rid of let's say one problematic aspect of their business where do you how do you advise alessandra as an investor coming and coming from private equity how do you work with companies that could be problematic in that sense when some aspects of what they're doing are you know when the ceo is speaking um and it sounds like they're really leading the conversation but then they're also affiliated with these negative aspects absolutely so there are two points and this is a great example um sweta because actually i'm here in asia and uh, i was shocked when i started seeing all these product lines about whitening your skin yeah because it is a thing it's actually a thing and it's everywhere in the 7-elevens here i see all sorts of like and not just you know I, I haven't even seen i don't know if unilever has a specific brand here but all the international companies have seen their brands for whitening your skin and so i think there are two things in here to consider one is that as an international company if you're starting to understand that this is problematic right like overall for your brand i'm talking very pragmatically here you should see how everything is interconnected right and it's not just because you're specifically for instance i'm here in thailand i'm seeing these products right you're specifically here and fair enough the local market offers that and demands that still unfortunately right you should think about the interconnectedness right uh because you're not just local not just here and then the second thing is quite frankly i feel a lot of these companies are leaving on the table the power of leading a social cultural movement of change making statements not to say okay we'll remove this but maybe bringing forward you know campaigns right bringing forward maybe new products that are kind of about the opposite right and they also bring through the opposite right just taking care of yourself or you know accepting yourself as you are no whitening but i don't know just like natural products right and so i think they're leaving a lot on the table by not doing that by not taking a stand we are seeing it here and there isolated cases right and often they do very well but we see it more often than not obviously with new startups coming out there and really believing in this because it's truly part of their values and making this statement and you see that the market is just ready for that the market has just been waiting for someone to like steer the way and bring through a new identity yeah no i totally i appreciate that there's like a there's it's giving away kind of the old forces are giving away to the new forces but the old forces are still in control despite everything we're talking about despite this huge success that was earth day 50th anniversary despite covid-19 making a 8% decrease in global energy emissions for the year 2020 that's just a blip in the scale that's not going to actually take us off the trajectory to the planet warming until you get heavy industries to change their behaviors until you get fossil fuel companies to really recognize that they are part of this solution so far it's business as usual and we're still continuing to see an increase every single year so what's going on when you have this awareness when you have like demand and cries from youth activists all around the world saying we we want to see change and yet the graph is still heading upward what does that mean like how do we really make some impact here ultimately how do we change the old guard mhm mm yes so let's get to that because i think that a lot of the things that we're dealing with right now the big problems the big things we want to change like racism these are complex issues that are present everywhere in our society in business in politics in our culture in our minds whether we like it or not and so when it comes to this from my opinion it needs to be tackled from as many different angles 
as possible. And I think that if we can increasingly do that, you know, if we can become aware of this, if we can all go about it, right, from our different corners and from our different perspectives, from our different like influence points, then we can really bring about that continuous marginal change because I believe in compounding, right? And so, and that's also like at the core of top tier impact, you know, we said we want to kind of like come forward for the impact and sustainability space in a way that already makes a difference today, tomorrow, next week, next month, not maybe in 10 years, and eventually compound for the space, right? And so I believe that when we go about addressing issues, ultimately it's also about coordinating ourselves and like going about it from many different angles and keeping at it. It's kind of like, I like to say, you have to believe that you can change the world and you have to believe it every single day because eventually it compounds, right? But these problems are complex. They need us all to address it from different corners. Where do you see the most momentum uh, and the least momentum right now? What industries? Because, you know, I'm pretty much over here in a silo with the food and agriculture industry. The energy field is huge in this area. Uh, Where do you see the big wins and who could do better? I think in your space, and you'll be more qualified to say it, but I'm seeing a lot happening. I'm really seeing a lot happening because there are two components in terms of like how fast change can come. And one we touched upon, which is customers, customers' choices. And I think that when it comes to sustainable foods, for instance, the voices are so loud and so direct, right? Because it's not just that, okay, maybe customers want, um, you know, renewable energy, but renewable, they're not quite directly tied to it, right? Whereas when it comes to voting with your wallet, if it's fashion, right, sustainable fashion, sustainable beauty, sustainable food, that's so direct. These are all consumer brands, right? When it comes to energy, that's why I mentioned before how the cost profiles have been changing for industries like solar to truly make sense, because in there, you don't quite have this direct kind of communication from the customer. And so you also need the industry dynamics. You need the technology to catch up. You need the grants, right, from public sectors, like kind of like pushing forward these agendas. So you need those pushes as well. And so I would say that when you look across different industries, um, in clean energy, a lot has been moving because of this. In areas where consumer brands uh, are leading the way, like in fashion, like in foods, like in beauty, that is because of consumers, right? And you see it happening. And then I think there are areas like education, for instance, where I would say this is more sort of like lagging behind because it's so complex to change that. It's so like tied, not just like to public sector per se, but also like localized and it's it's a really slow machine to move. And I think there is so much that needs to change in terms of what's being taught to kids, how kids are being taught in the first place. There is so much there that needs to change and has potential for true impact at scale, right? Because we're talking about kids' education, right? We're talking about like how, what they get taught in the first place. So there are some sectors like that which are very complex to change, where I'm seeing things lagging behind. And then there are sectors where the feedback loop is so much tighter and closer, where things are moving faster. Yeah. And I asked the question knowing the answer. I'm guilty. I was <laughs> Scientists always do this, especially in academic conferences, as Taylor and I unfortunately know. We love getting questions. We hate getting questions from those in the audience because you know that they just want to answer it themselves. Um, <laughs> 
But consumers have a lot of power. But one of the biggest um, consumption of energy globally is heating and cooling. And that's something regardless, you're going to need and consumers are going, ultimately, it's not going to matter what, where the source of the energy is coming from, but you need to heat and cool your homes, especially as we are increasing in temperature. So that needs to be fuel, fueled through renewable energy, right? Because no matter what, if people are too hot or too cold, it won't matter to them at that point. And it's a huge risk that is underreported on how, like the amount of deaths that actually happen globally from extreme heat and extreme cold. So that is something that I completely, everything you're saying, we're talking about overhauling different systems. Renewable energy really just needs to become the source, right? And that's been the largest increase in energy in this year, 2020. Despite everything else taking a massive hit, renewable energy has increased. So that's a good sign. And there's some definitely some hope there. Ultimately, we're looking at a new planet. And this is something that's the theme of our show throughout this season and our new season. And we need to adapt to that. We are not going to be able to completely turn the tide. We are going to be living on a planet that is hotter. So in the next 30 years, we can anticipate a brand new environment that is going to have much more extreme cold and much more extreme heat. So despite our best efforts, that adaptation needs to happen. So there's still that future where people are excited and they're surviving and thriving and not just, okay, how are we going to get through the day? But rather, how are we going to still find this environment to not be as hostile as we're anticipating? So I wanted to kind of steer the conversation in that direction. What do you, What is this vision of the new future? We'll still do everything we're talking about. We'll still get private sector involved. We will energize new businesses to be more sustainable. All of that is going to happen, but we are locked in to a much hotter planet. How is that going to look? Yes, so I think that something that needs to happen all across the board is more accountability. We talk about transparency. To me, transparency is like accountability with no teeth because what you do measure, you cannot be held accountable for. And so we need to organize better collectively, but we also need to measure things for real and put them in perspective. Because what does it mean that we are all very much able to do across any sector and across with you know any any kind of like data that you work with. And so we need to do that here too, right? We need to say, okay, what does this concretely look like? You know, what does this concretely look like? And then measure things and measure and hold ourselves accountable. Like are we getting there or not? Because this is all measurable already actually. It might be controversial how exactly it's been measured or what the targets should be, but we can do it. And so I think that we really need to, once again, you know, across our different industries, think about how can we do this in our space and contribute to the picture in a way that is like for real. You know, it's not just like we've all heard enough fancy talk, right? So like, how do we get down to business and getting this done? We need to measure things and hold ourselves accountable. And this is, by the way, where regulation plays a big role as well. Well, it's almost like we need metrics based on industry. So, you know, take the UN Sustainable Development Goals and match every industry. Let the industries come together and say, here's how we're going to improve on X, Y, and Z goal, you know, in the next five years. Because we have to do something. 
And I do think the private sector is a huge part of the solution. But we also need to demand that data be available because private sector isn't, if they're not publicly traded, they don't necessarily need to present that information. And increasingly, consumers can demand it. We want to see the metrics. We want to see the numbers. But again, despite that, some in some cases, you just don't have a choice. You need to heat and cool your home, right? So there's that really does rely on the source of the energy then becoming renewable across the board. Otherwise, we just really need to kind of dig our heels in and recognize the planet's going to be hotter. And that doesn't have to be a negative thing. We've never lived in an environment that's so hot, but it doesn't mean we can't. We just need to be more innovative. And I tell, and I want to throw this out to you, Alessandra, and your communities and networks. There's a lot of potential innovation there. Where are the companies? Not, not all of this has to be mitigation, super important. We have to stave off the worst case scenarios. We can't live on a planet that's three degrees, four degrees hotter. We will melt, right? But we can become really innovative on how to live on a planet that's 1.52 degrees hotter. So where are the companies that are doing that? Where is the investment going there? Like, what are, where are the new technologies that are making living in that type of environment more bearable and more even, where's the opportunity to be living on a hotter planet? Where are the benefits? Like, does that mean better wine? You know, like, does that mean that some place, we need to understand that a little bit more. So there's opportunities there that are really exciting. Do you know of any? that any really innovative companies that are thinking ahead to what a future hotter environment would look like and what the opportunities could be? Of course. So I think, for instance, the whole regenerative sector is super important in this picture because, for instance, like if you look at desertification, desertification is starting to happen at scale in so many parts of our world. How do we go about regenerating soil, right? Soil plays such an important role in the ecosystem. How do we go about creating sustainable eco-villages, for instance, which is becoming a big topic, right? especially because of uh, COVID kind of taking over, but it was a, a topic that was growing already before. But how do we create, you know, sustainable kind of circular communities, circular economies, right? This is another, and zero waste, this is another big, big topic. And so I would say that I tend to believe that we really get the technologies we need when we need them, somehow there is continuously this balance, right? Why is it that right now that we need it more than ever? For instance, the green energy sector has been catching up in the way that I was describing before, where it's like actually the price makes sense as well. And so I often see these kind of natural catch up just when we need it. And so I think that right now, the thinking ahead that you're talking about, so, okay, how do we adjust? is happening also in a way that is kind of saying, how do we integrate in the existing problems that we have that are becoming a key part of moving towards two degrees hotter or more, right? And how do we kind of slow that down? And how do we, by the way, really think about it without any BS? Because, for example, there are sustainable solutions that are so to say sustainable, but actually they cause more harm than good. And these has to be a topic that gets discussed as well, right? Yeah, that's great. And I, I actually, that's a, a great uh, note to end on. Um, we're at the top of the hour right now. Um, and so, I, Alessandra, you've been fantastic. I just want to thank you for coming on the show. We really could, you know, extend this and go a whole hour. This is like a topic that Shetha and I are both really passionate about. Um, to the audience, uh, do uh, check Alessandra out on uh Instagram and Facebook and social media. Um, and we thank you for tuning in.
That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at RiskyBehaviorDC. That's all one word. My handle, at ShutTheChalk. That's S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K. Or Taylor's handle, at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.